Most people tend to view money as a means to buy stuff. By and large, in the last 10 or 20 years, another element came to that when it became really popular to say money will make you happier if you don't use it to buy stuff, but you buy experiences. To me, the biggest third leg into that that is the most important that I write a lot, write a lot about in the book is that so much of what money does is it lets you control your time and it gives you options. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of speaking with Morgan Housel, who is a partner at Collaborative VC, an investment fund focused on supporting and investing in the shared future. The fund centers around two macro themes, which are the growth of the creative class and the concept of collaborative consumption. Now, Morgan has a really unique role at the fund because he's not actually an investor. He's not an investing partner. He's a writer. He produces all the written content for the fund, which is why I wanted to talk with him. In this episode, we talk about the content marketing strategies that he's put in place, whether money can buy happiness, and his new book, The Psychology of Money. So Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, happy to be here. Awesome, so Morgan, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? Yeah, good good way of phrasing it. I've often just then said that I'm a financial writer and that can take a lot of meanings. I'm not a journalist. I'm not, you know, a reporter. I'm not out on the street collecting facts and whatnot. I'm kind of just sitting at, at my desk, but I'm also not in the trenches of investing. I'm not an active fund manager. I'm not actively making investments. So I've often just kind of viewed myself as like a financial writer or just happen to be you know, a, a full-time investor, because that's what I think about. And that's the lens in which I look at, look at it through. But I'm just doing it from an outsider's perspective of trying to observe how people invest and how they think about investing, the history of investing, particularly as it pertains to investing psychology. So I just want to learn as much about those topics as I can and then share it with, a, share it with the world, share it with people in a way that is hopefully accessible and digestible and sometimes enjoyable to read. So I guess the, I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying, how do I address myself? Uh, it's changed throughout the years, and I still don't ex- know exactly what to call myself other than maybe just a financial writer. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Uh, I think it's incredible that you've like carved out this lane for yourself in, this, in the VC world, because I don't think I've ever met anybody who, who has this kind of title in this world. I mean, have you met another you before? There are, there are, uh, there, there, there are some. I would say people like the like, like uh, most of the people who work at Ritholtz Wealth Management, Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, Barry Ritholtz, Ben Carlson, those guys do a similar thing where they use content to kind of show the world how they think and to uh, you know kind of gently wave their arms to try to get people's attention in a way that raises profile for the firm that they work for. So you know it's it's. In, in some ways, what I do is marketing for the collaborative fund. But my goal is that no one actually th- notices that it's marketing or thinks of it as marketing because I'm not writing marketing pieces. I'm not saying, here's why we're the best and here's why we're different and here's why you should join us. I just want to write things that I hope people will think are inter- is, is interesting and that hopefully people will share with each other and that changes how they might think about the world and broaden their horizons a little bit. In a way that just you know brings people to our site naturally, rather than forcing them in through a marketing piece that is kind of catchy and grabby, 
just building brand awareness through writing things that people genuinely enjoy reading is kind of the goal. And there, there, there are, it's still rare. Like most marketing, so to speak, is done through the, the normal way where you have, you know, a marketing piece that goes in a magazine or a TV commercial or a podcast commercial. But doing it through this way is, I think, a really, it's just an interesting way to not only raise awareness, but gain a form of trust with your customers. Because when you show them constantly how you think, this is what's going through my head. These are how I make decisions. This is how I view the world. Then when they when it comes time to invest with you, uh, they kind of already know you in, in a deeper way than you normally would. It makes it easier for them to take the leap of, leap of faith in order uh, for them to do business with you. Yeah, no, I, um, I'm a huge advocate for content marketing. I think it's like this secret weapon that people are not utilizing. Well, most companies don't. And I think the ones that do, whether it's a company, a startup, or a fund, I think the ones that do create great content ultimately have the most brand awareness um, and probably end up, from a VC perspective, getting the most deals. Um, you know, aside from you guys, I know, um, uh, what's, it, what's it called? First capital, first, first round. They, first they, round, there's a lot of content. Yeah. They have a lot of content. They're like super aggressive with it. Um, yeah. But, but it's like, but it's great content, right? Like it's, it's good content. It's, there's so many areas. It's like a whole course. I think they actually do have a course. <laughs> but, um, right. but yeah. And what's like, interesting yeah. is that most, most content marketing is still an overt pitch to a company or a product. Right. That's what most of it. So a lot of companies say like, oh yeah, we do content marketing, but it's actually just traditional marketing, but it, it's just, it's just a really long rather than like a, you know, a 30 second commercial. It's still a traditional marketing piece, but they turn it into a 2000 word blog post. And that's like, not at all what I'm trying to do. I just want to write things that people would enjoy all the time that they're, that they want to, uh, you know, share with their family and their coworkers that has nothing to do with, there's no even oblique pitch in there. It's just like, yeah. it's just, hopefully this is interesting. And by the way, since it's interesting, it's going to draw more people to the site make people more aware of what we're doing. So it's still like the end goal is the same as traditional marketing. It's just getting there through a way that I think is much more conducive to gaining trust with people. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best kind of content marketers are the ones where it's not an explicit pitch. Right, um, exactly. One where they're actually providing value upfront um, and helping you achieve your goal with or without them. I think that's right to, to good content marketing. And I know uh, those guys at Kissmetrics, um, they do some good content. Are you familiar with Kissmetrics? Uh, um, no, I'm not. No. So they're like a, I mean, we're going on a tangent here. We still need to get into your background, but we're here now. So let's go. But um, so Kissmetrics basically are an analytical platform. So, you know, helping companies on their back end, like monitor like installs and downloads and site traffic, et cetera. So obviously their biggest competitor will be Google Analytics. And what I thought was really smart about what they did, they actually did a whole blog post on how to use Google Analytics. Not why we're better than Google Analytics, but why or how you can be more effective with Google Analytics. And I thought it was a really smart move because it was like, this is clearly a competitor, but you're not yeah. trying to compete with them. You're actually just trying to provide, because you know most people who are in the startup world when they're starting out are going to use a free platform yep, and they're not going to pay for your product initially. So let's help them get to that point where they want to explore different products. Um, and if they're going to do that, they're going to need to start off somewhere. So let's help them yep. with what they're going to start with. So I just thought that was a really smart way of creating content that 
provided value up front and actually got some trust and buy-in from a potential customer. That's great. Yeah. I mean, so much of what the, the end goal of marketing is, it's not just, it's not just awareness, it's trust. It's like, do yeah. it's like, it's not just, are people aware of your product? It's like, are they aware of the product and do they trust that you are going to actually deliver something to them that they are familiar with and that they know what they're going to get. So. Right. But before we get into the book that's coming out later this year, The Psychology of Money um, and the, the, the content that you're creating at Collaborative Fund, um, I want to talk a bit about early life. I'll start from the beginning. So so how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? And, and how did you kind of get involved in kind of writing in this space? Well, I, I, I was born in New York City and my parents ran a volunteer ambulance service. And this is in the early 1980s when New York City was, you know, sort of comparable to a third world country. It was just completely crime ridden, drug ridden. It was a, yeah. New York City is in a very bad spot um, in, in the early 1980s. My parents were in a volunteer ambulance service. So they really saw the, the grittiest, dirtiest, most tragic parts of, of the city. And then my dad, when he was uh, uh, in his early 30s and had three kids, I'm the youngest of three, decided to go to medical school. Which is not, or he he started his undergraduate college, I should say, in his early thirties with three kids, um, with the plan to become a doctor. So obviously he got like a, a ridiculously late start, and to start his undergraduate college with three kids just put him in such a, a difficult spot relative to everyone else kind of going through that path. So he became a doctor when he was in his mid forties, and I, I I'm the I'm the youngest of three. I was I was a I was a young teenager at the time. And I, I bring, let's bring this up because I kind of got to see the two sides of of that that spectrum. One was, you know, when my parents were completely one hundred percent broke. We were living off of grants and student loans. My my, my parents were both in college. Um, and then when my father became a doctor, and then we we kind of went on on the other side of that and had a much more comfortable existence in life. And so I think seeing that was really important. It was important for my parents because the frugality that was demanded of them when they were so poor, when they were students, stuck with them even after my dad became a doctor and the means increased. So my parents always, you know, throughout my life had a very high savings rate. Our standard of living, you know, it certainly, of course, improved from the time we were, you know, they were students, but we, it was always live well below your means, use up the old stuff frugality, you know, what, what really matters in life is not the money or the toys that you have. It's doing things that don't cost a lot of money because we learned those skills when we were so poor. So I think seeing kind of two, like almost the extreme ends of that spectrum was really interesting for me. And it just kind of, I think that from an early age, I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, I think it set this idea that um, money is, is very important because it can make you so much uh, more comfortable and safer and give you more options. But also, what makes people really happy is stuff that has nothing to do with money. Because I, I would phrase it this way: we were not happier as a family after my father became a doctor. When we were when we were completely dead broke and living off of grants, we, I, I think we were just as happy as we ever were. Because the things that make people actually happy in life were, you know, your relationships with your friends and your families and the purpose that you have. Uh, things and we, we just kind of learn to be happy and do things that didn't cost a lot of money, going camping and going hiking and that sort of stuff. So I think that that just led a, a big impression on me of like the value of frugality and what actually matters in life, but also the value of having options, having a safe a security net that can that can you know give you options in life later on. So that was kind of my my early 
my early upbringing as it pertains to money. Um, as I got to college, my plan was to go into investment banking. That was what I wanted to do. Uh, and that was 2007 when the economy started imploding and blowing up in the early days of the great financial crisis. So I needed something else to do. And I just kind of stumbled haphazardly. There was no plan whatsoever, but stumbled into a job as a writer at The Motley Fool, where I thought I would, I would be a financial writer for a couple months before I found another job in finance. And I ended up staying for 10 years and just falling in love with the process of writing in a way that I never anticipated, certainly was not the plan. But I loved how just how writing kind of, you know, is a really good mechanism to clarify vague thoughts that you have in your head. These kind of gut feelings that you think are true. And if you sit down and force yourself to write them, you can either you gain a lot of clarity to those ideas or the opposite. When you put them down on paper, you realize that these gut feelings that you've had are actually ridiculous and don't make any sense when you put them into paper. So I, I just fell in love with that idea. Only like I, I've always called it selfish writing. The idea that like, look, when you're writing, you're writing for other people. You're writing for an audience. But there's a selfish side of writing where you get to clarify a lot of thoughts that you have in your head. And there's no better way to clarify them than to sit down and put them, you know, put a pen to paper, so to speak. So it's like writing is a really helpful way to just help you think about the world and clear and kind of like put these thoughts that you had in your head into a more structured uh, way that helps you see them and make more sense of the of the ideas that you have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, do you do you do you believe that everyone can be a writer, or do you think there's still like a bit of a art slash science? It's definitely. I, I think it's much more of an art rather than a science, and that's why virtually everyone, no matter what your your you know you're going through high school or going through college, no matter what your major is in college, virtually everyone has to take writing courses. And but obviously the you know the the quality of writing later in life is is vast. So everyone can write, of course, like to make it through high school or college, university, everyone can write. But there's such an art to it that I, 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 that I think can't be taught. It can't be taught in colleges. It can't be taught in high school. It just has to do with like tons and tons of practice. And unless you are a full-time writer and you're writing every single day and not just writing emails, but writing like long form narratives about things, it's um, it's definitely an art that you... You that you improve upon over time, but I don't think there's a way that you can really teach people it. Uh, I, I think if, if you view writing as an art, similar to painting or sculpting or dancing, is an art. Like, can can you teach someone painting? Yes, you can. But can you teach someone to be a great painter? No, I, I don't think so because that's when the art takes over, and there's mm -hmm. so much just nuance and personality, and what you're actually painting or what you're actually writing is not coming from your head. It's coming from your soul. I know that's kind of like cheesy to say, but it's true. That's where like the good writing comes from is when it's really personal, really deep in a way that I think cannot be taught. So people can get better through practice. Anyone can get better through practice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it can be taught. Right, totally. And I guess with your, your role at, at Motley Fool, um, like you said, you were there for 10 years and you must have written, I mean, God knows, I don't know if you've got your word count, but I'm sure it's <laughs> pretty high. Um, it, was, it, was, it was in the millions. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what kind of content, because obviously that's dealing with predominantly, you know, like public markets in terms of financial news, right? I guess they're probably yeah. dealing with equity markets as well to some extent but um but no, it was, no, yeah you're right it's it's pretty much entirely based around public markets so that's been the thrust of my career and even through today one of my collaborative fund of, of a venture capital firm 
public markets are still kind of uh, the main window through which I view the investing world. It's the broadest. It's the most relevant to me personally. And so it's also what I find the most interesting because it's so much broader and uh, and more diverse than private markets. And public markets, I think, are almost like... It's this incredible show, this window into how people think. Because what public markets are, are just like this output of millions of people making decisions with their life savings around... You know, fo- you know, and they're incorporating things about risk and reward and greed and fear and opportunity and scarcity. So I think public markets are just a fascinating window into how people's heads work. So it's what I find most interesting. So at the Motley Fool, that was what that was the thrust of what I wrote about. I wrote a lot about not just public markets, but economics, investing, history, um, and th- and still at, at Collaborative Fund today. Even though it's a, it's a different organization, the thrust of what I write about is really the same, which I've always viewed as the intersection of investing history and investing psychology. It's like, what are what is the history of how people behaved with their money? The, the decisions that they made with their own money, particularly as it pertains to investing, and what can we learn from those decisions? Like, what are the, what are the common themes over history that teach us about how people behave with their money? And what, what can we do about it to think about risk in a more productive way today? Yeah, no, that's good. And I mean, this is probably going to be in the book, but like, why on how do people spend their money? Uh, I mean, I, I, I think in a broad sense, this is what I would what, what this to me is probably the most important thing is that most people tend to view money as a means to buy stuff to go out and buy stuff, whether that stuff is a house or a bigger house or a new car or a fancier car or you know new clothes and you watch it's a means to buy stuff. Um, by and large, in the last 10 or 20 years, another element came to that when it became really popular to say, well, you know, money, money will make you happier if you don't use it to buy stuff, but you buy, you buy experiences. So, you know, going on vacations and using it to go out with friends and whatnot, that almost became like a meme, like don't spend stuff, go out and spend your money on experiences. To me, the biggest kind of uh, third leg into that, that is the most important that I write a lot, write a lot about in the book is that so much of what money does is it lets you control your time and it gives you options. So if you can use money to have to control your time, to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want to do today. And maybe what you want to do today is go to work at a corporation and work nine to five. If that's what you want to do, then you're using money to, to, to control your time and give you options. But if you can use your money to say, uh, pick a job that has a shorter commute or a job where you get along with people so much better, a job where... You are doing something that actually fulfills you, that gives you purpose in the world. If you're using your money to uh, be able to take enough time off so that you have uh, you know, a lower level of stress, so that you can out, go out and do other things that you want to do, so that you can retire early or just retire whenever you want to on your own terms. The extent that you can use money to control your time, to control your calendar, to give yourself options throughout the day, that I think to me is... Uh, the most important thing that we can spend our, our our money on just giving yourself options and having having a high savings rate so that you have enough kind of firepower in the bank to endure whatever life might happen to throw about you. That is so much softer and mushier than saying use your money to go buy a house, use your money to go on vacation. But I think it's like it's so much more nuanced than that. But it's so much more important if we're trying to figure out how can we be happier with our money, and that's important because there's so much evidence that despite on average the developed world becoming much richer over the last hundred years. There's not a lot of evidence that we're much happier because of it. And I think a lot of the reason why that is, is because we have used the wealth to buy more stuff, but we have 
in many ways, less control over our time than we ever have. We're busier than ever. We feel our calendars are more packed than ever. We, you know, we have other people controlling our time, demanding when we're going to do things, you know, what we're going to do, when we're going to do them more than ever before. And I think that's a lot of the reason why kind of net happiness, if you look at it over time, hasn't changed that much despite getting so much richer. So I just try to answer that question in the book. There's a chapter in there. Um, that, 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 that kind of goes through like, how can we use it? How can we use money then to become a little bit happier over time? And there's always going to be things that have nothing to do with money that lead to levels of happiness and unhappiness, whether it's a bad marriage or whatever else is going on in the world. That's just like falls outside of the money realm. But how can we actually use money to become happier over time? It, it seems like a weird question because to most people, it's almost like a knee jerk reaction. More money equals more happiness. That's kind of like we inter- intuitively think. But everyone thinks that. People who make $20,000 a year think that. People who make $20 million a year think that. That if you just had a little bit more, then, then you would, you know, get on, then you would get over the hump. The grass is greener on the other side and, and, and happiness will, you know, you know, certainly uh, is, is waiting for us in the future. So just trying to get over that block and trying to say, okay, like what can we use at any income level? Uh, how can we use money to make us happier is, is an important topic that I try to tackle. Yeah, no, that, that's a that's very fascinating, um, and I think you know, given the industry that you work in, I think you know most people are are chasing that, right? Like, yes, I think a lot of founders like to think they are quite altruistic by nature, um, but ultimately they are trying to achieve substantial amount of wealth through their startups. Yeah, and and which is great. Look, I'm a I'm a I'm a red blooded capitalist, so I think it's it's great. People want to use you know that that motivation to go out and do stuff. I do that as well. Like this is not an anti money screed whatsoever. Um, but uh, it's it's just like a subtle shift of what you do with your own personal money. And you're right that there are a lot of people out there that their goal is to make a lot of money. But so so then the question is, well, what do you, why do you actually want to make a lot of money? Or why do you want nice things? Why do you want the Ferrari? Why do you want the mansion? And I think for yeah. the majority of people, not everyone, but the majority of people, the answer is I want respect and admiration from other people. If you were to really dig down to it, that's what people want from it. I want to be respected. And they think that the Ferrari is going to gain them respect. They think that the Rolex and the private jet and the mansion, that that's going to gain them respect. And to some degree that will, but it's probably not going to gain you respect from people who you want to respect you, from people whose opinions you really care about. What, what, makes, people, what, what makes those people, people who you care about, your, your closest friends, your family, your spouse, what's going, to, what's going to cause them to really give you a lot of respect and, and admiration, your coworkers, so to speak. Um, are, are, are things that really have very little to do with money. It's whether you are good and honest and helpful and whether you are easy to work with, whether you're fun to work with, whether you listen and can carry on a great conversation. These things that have like, like little to do with it, which is just another twist on the why hasn't the money that we've gained over the last century made us much happier. It's because like what we want out of life by and large on average doesn't have much to do with it. And I think there's an important point here too, that again, this is not to say that you know, money can't make you happier. Of, of, of course, it, it it can and it does. Like this is not a, a plea for people to say it makes no difference. So you might as well, you know, move off to a reservation and 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 be a hippie living in a tent because it doesn't matter anyways. It's not that whatsoever. I want. I love nice cars. I I I like nice houses. Like I I'm as I, I'm materialistic too. This is not. 
this is this is not anything that's 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 fully against that. But just how can we try a little bit better? How, like how can we tilt in a further direction that's going to help us become a little bit happier with our money? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, everybody is materialistic, and I think. You know, we, we don't like to admit it, but we do. You know, we want the cars, we want the house, we want everything that comes with it. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the, the process of, of creating good content. Um, so I'm sure, you know, like you said, it's a bit of art, like putting all the pieces together. But like, how do you go about choosing what you're going to write about and then structuring what you're going to write about and then doing research? Or not in that order, but oh, maybe it is that order. I don't know. But like, how do you go about creating good content? So yeah, so for me, it starts with this observation that uh, investing is not the study of finance. Investing is a study of how people behave with money, and because of that, since it's a study of behavior, it incorporates lessons and rules from all kinds of fields that have nothing to do with with investing. So since it's it's just kind of the study of how people deal with risk and opportunity and those kind of things, you can learn about investing through the lens of dozens of different fields, uh, which is which is just uh, one way of saying I don't really read any investing books or not a lot of investing commentary, very little. Uh, I, I, I try to spread my reading as broad as I can across as many different disciplines as I can, um, and try to try to like put the pieces together of what can I learn from one field that reminds me of something else that is relevant to investing? What can I read from uh, history, military history? What can I read from politics? What can I read from biology and paleontology and all these fields that have nothing to do with investing? But sometimes you will read an anecdote, read a story, read about a principle from one of these fields that makes you click and say, ah, that reminds me of something that's important in investing. So that's where most of my reading starts, or uh, where, where most of my research, I would say, for writing starts, is just through the broadest possible reading that I can, kind of the top of the funnel, taking as much as, in as I can from a variety of different sources as I can. And then if I can find something within those industries that reminds me of investing, that I think is a really a powerful hook for an investing article. If you can show someone, hey, here's this really important investing idea, and this is so important that I can actually explain it through the lens of this other field, like through the, through the lens of biology or paleontology that has nothing to do with investing. I think it becomes much more A, entertaining for people and mm. B, more persuasive. If something is true in many different fields, that's probably because it's extremely true, extremely powerful, and it, it reveals something that is just fundamental about human nature. And therefore, if you can prove that something important in investing you know, come is also true in other fields, it becomes much more persuasive for people to say, yeah, you're right. This is probably something that is fundamental to who we are as people, to how we think about risk, how we think about opportunity that I should pay more attention to. It's just also, I think, so much more entertaining for people because uh, the huge majority of investing commentary out there, even the good stuff, is just written through the lens of finance, which even if you're a financial professional, just gets boring and repetitive over time. So if you can incorporate you know, quirky stories about how the world works into your investing articles, people are much, it, it, it's just much more enjoyable, not only for the reader, but for the writer to do the, the research and investing process and turn something into a narrative that is uh, fun and quirky and just teaches you something broader about how the world works. Yeah, absolutely. Can you give me an example of uh, something like you said, that is not necessarily a finance thing, but you've taken like this concept or analogy from a different area and you've applied it to the area of investing. 
Sure. So here's here here's here's one idea. There was a research some research done by biologists at the University of Toronto about a decade ago where they showed if you take uh, fish, I think they were trout they were looking at, uh, and you put them in water that is slightly warmer than their normal temperature or water that is slightly colder than their normal temperature, that has a big impact on that fish's ability to grow. The fish that's put in the abnormally warm water, you know, not crazy warm, but just a few degrees warmer than it's used to, that fish, the, the warm water will increase its metabolism and that fish will grow much faster than normal. On the other hand, the, water, the fish that's put in the abnormally cold water, its metabolism will slow down and that fish will grow much slower than normal. Now, eventually those two fish will reach the same full-grown adult size. The warm water gets there much faster, but they eventually reach the same adult size. And then if you put them back in their normal temperature water, something really interesting happens, which is that the fish in that, that came from the hot water that grew really fast dies about 20% sooner than average. It, die, it, it dies much earlier in life. The fish that was put in the cold water that grew really slow increases its lifespan by 50% relative to the, the normal fish. So the, the takeaway from these authors that they explained really well is like, it is possible in biology to speed up growth, to kind of have artificially, you know, really fast growth, but it comes at the cost of, of growth and development that uh, that has damaging side effects. And so, they, as they explained it, they basically said, "Look, you might expect that if you built a house very, very quickly, you would cut corners and you would not do a very good job. You kind of slap things together quickly in a way that was not very robust." And that was exactly what was happening to to the fish that were growing really quickly. They were growing really fast, but it came at the expense of their kind of their their health robustness. And that I think is that analogy that things that if you, that you can have growth that you speed up. And front load, and you know, leverage your growth, but it ends up coming at the long term viability of 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 the structure of the organism is exactly what's happening, kind of in startups and VC, mm-hmm. where you have a lot of companies that are trying to gr- just grow, 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 grow as fast as you can, with this noble intention of like we want to become a big company so we get network effects and we have economies of scale. But if you're supercharging growth in an artificial way, and it's not really natural growth, it's not because the customers really want your product, you're just like stuffing so much money into customer acquisition costs and marketing, a lot of that growth ends up backfiring. Uh, Starbucks is one example of this um, about 15 years ago when the company was just growing so fast. It just could not open stores quick enough. And it almost became a meme of like there were Starbucks that were, they would open up a new Starbucks right next door to an old Starbucks. It was just like cannibalizing sales from each other. And it completely backfired. You had about 10 years of ridiculously fast growth. And then by 2007, same store sales were declining. Customer satisfaction was declining because they had just put every effort of their company into growing. And they had to cut back substantially. They massively reduced the growth point. They closed a lot of stores um, and kind of got back on track. But so that to me was an example of like, how do you explain something about business that's going on in business today through the lens of something else? And the idea that supercharging your growth is possible, but comes at the expense of long-term viability is something that is as true in nature and biology as it is in business and investing. That is... Fascinating. I was thinking, where is he going to go with this fish analogy? Um, that's right. Yeah. No, that's good. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, startups do raise too much money and they do do things to grow at all costs. Um, but I guess with, you know, COVID now, we're seeing, you know, more like a market correction and we're seeing, you know, rounds being a bit more, I guess, quote unquote, realistic. And some yeah. companies 
we even got like a down round, etc. So there is a bit of market correction that's happening. Um, no, that, that's 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 really cool. And I guess from a I guess from a from a from a VC perspective and a, and a content perspective, how are VCs leveraging content to to grow and get better deals? Because you know traditionally VCs can't you know by law they can't advertise, right? Um, right. So is this the only avenue they can? Because I don't think every fund has a good content marketing strategy. I'm sorry. Well, I think what's important in private markets, VC and private equity and whatnot, is that unlike public markets, where everyone can go out and buy the same shares, whether you're Warren Buffett or just you know a 17-year-old on Robinhood, you can buy the exact same Apple shares. It's available to everyone. Whereas in private markets, you have to win deals. You have to not only find the right deals, but then you have to convince the, the founder, the CEO, the investors that you are the right person to let into the deal. And that's where I think content is so important and just in terms of brand awareness and have since money is fungible and there are so many funds out there today so many vc funds so many private equity funds if you're only uh offering to the to the the startup community to the business community is that you can write a check if that's all you offer you're you're probably not going to make it because there are a lot of people can write a check there's a lot of money in the industry you have to be able to show that you are not necessarily different because everyone says that they're different. So that's the wrong way to phrase it. But you just have to have a set of values, a set of philosophies that founders and companies and businesses align with. And they can kind of see like, hey, this is a person who sees the world through the same lens as I do. And those values, those philosophies don't mean anything unless people know about them. And then so if you can use content to kind of just show the world how you think and what you're thinking about and how you make decisions... Uh, that is a way that it's it's not necessarily marketing for the firm as we're discussing, but it's just a way to you know of brand awareness to show people how you think, so that when it comes time to uh, pick investors that you're going to bring into your company, if 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 one fund has just gone out of its way for years to show the world what it's thinking about and how it thinks and what it values and what philosophies are meaningful to them, it's just much easier to for company for founders and businesses to make that leap of faith. Uh, to 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 bring you in, so I think that is it's spreading quite a bit. A lot of funds, a lot of investors have blogs these days. Social media has just made it so easy to have a, not just a powerful a platform, but a very powerful platform. So it's growing, but in terms of funds that kind of make it uh, a big effort and have a, a full time writer like me, that that still seems 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 fairly rare. Yeah, super rare, like you said. And who I guess in, in the context of collaborative fund who sets the do you set the criterion strategy for the the content yeah so my my writing is pretty much uh is pretty much a a one-man show from coming up with the ideas to writing the ideas to editing them to to publishing them for better or worse it's all me so the good ones i own the bad ones i own which is how i like it it gets back to writing being an art um like i there's this weird thing of like i I want to own the bad articles. I, I want everything to be mine because look, if I was working with an editor that was like substantially altering what I wrote, then when an article did really well, I want to be able to say, yeah, that, that, that was me. I, I would say, yeah, the article did really well, but this editor had a huge influence on it. Or if an article did really poorly, I could say, well, that's just because the editor changed my words. Like I, I really want to own everything for, for better or worse and make it make it mine. I think that's that's one of the ways that you can really grow and improve as a writer is if you if you really know that the feedback that you get, the good feedback and the bad feedback is 100% because of what you as a writer did versus you know at a lot of the major outlets, 
Um, but by the time an article is published in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or whatever it is, it is a shell of its of its former self from what the writer actually wrote. It's been edited by so many people and whittled down uh, by so many different minds, you know, different fingers that got that that that, that got their way into the piece. That the art, the author can't own the wins or the failures, and I think that's just a hard way to learn as a writer. So I, I love kind of being a one man show as as it pertains to writing. Yeah, sounds very very fun. Um, I want to switch gears a bit now, and, and uh, I guess talk about well, not really, but talk about content marketing from like a general startup perspective. So obviously, you must see a lot of different companies that uh, collaborative fund have invested in. Um, I don't know if they kind of have you operate as a consultant as well in terms of like advising companies in terms of like how they could implement a content strategy. But what what advice would you give to a startup that has, you know, a typical tech startup, you know, they might raise some money or they're just starting out. Like how should they be thinking? I mean, we did allude to it earlier, but how should they be thinking about creating their content strategy and, and what kind of like, how should they prioritize that? Do you think it's the first thing they should do besides hiring like someone to focus on like, Facebook and Instagram ads. Um, should this be kind of like their grassroots level kind of marketing that they can start off at the cuff? And like, what should they be thinking about when they're doing this? Uh, yeah. So the most important thing to me that sticks out is is this: whether it is a company or a person's blog, uh, is that most people just kind of get too impatient waiting for results, and they'll start a blog, they'll launch a blog, and they'll write one post, two posts, five posts, and they'll say, "Oh, this isn't going anywhere. No one's reading this. I'm, I'm going to shut this down." It takes like most of the, the bloggers that have a decent size audience today, it took them five or 10 years to get to a point to where pretty much anyone was paying attention. And the people that get to that point are, were pretty much fine writing day after day, month after month, year after year early on when virtually no one was paying attention. No one was commenting. Their readership was minimal. But they were writing, again, kind of in a selfish way. They're writing because they like writing. They love the process. They love doing it. And eventually over time, if you really put your heart and soul into it, you will get people's attention and your audience will grow. And every time you post, it'll start a conversation with people and people will email you about it. And that's when it, it gets really fun and it, it kind of takes off. But it takes so long to get there. And so that, that's that's a lot of what I see, particularly with, with companies as well, is they'll, they'll, they love the idea of content. They love the idea of starting a blog. And then they'll write three blog posts and they'll just say, we, we didn't get anything out of this. It's very different from like an Instagram post or a Facebook ad where you should, if you, if you publish a Facebook ad and you're paying for it, you should get results in some way very quickly. Whether that, in the, that results is just people clicking on the ad, they're not necessarily paying for a product, but you should get results really quickly in those kind of platforms. A blog is different. It takes, I think for me as a reader, if I stumble across a new blog, which is, which is pretty rare just because I stick to the ones that I know. But if I do stumble across a new blog, it probably takes three really good blog posts before I'm like, okay, this, this, this person's got my attention. I'm, I'm, I'm going to consistently come back now. And if you, so three really good posts. Now for most even really good writers, maybe one in 10 posts will be really good. Maybe that's, that, 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 that's if you're a really skilled writer, one in 10 posts will be great. Um, so if you need to read th- three of those, you know, at minimum, 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 you need to write 30 to 50 blog posts before you even have a shot of really capturing a lot of people's attention. Uh, and that just takes a lot of time. So it's a, it's a blogging can be a really powerful platform, but it's a very slow turnaround. 
And it, it can be, I, I think, the single most powerful platform if you give it enough time. But most people just don't have enough patience to get to that point over time. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, content. I mean, I guess, why does it take, when it comes to like writing, why does it take so long? I mean, is there anything that we could, you know, do to speed up that process? I know we just spoke about like growing when you don't need to grow, but like, why does it, because you're not the first person that said that in terms of when it comes to like creating any type of content, it does take years before you even get noticed. Like, is that just because you're doing it super organically? Is there any way that you can kind of like speed up that process? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think there's any way you can speed it up. And, I, I, and I'll get into that in a second. But the reason it takes so long is just because there's so much content out there these days that if you are a reader whose time is precious and you just have 30 minutes to do some reading in the morning, you are not going to waste your time on subpar content. Like there is good content out there for you to read. And so there are so many options for readers that... Um, you know, to be a new fish in that pond, in a pond that already has millions of people vying for attention, it's hard to get people's attention. The only way that you can really gain them and gain like repeat readers who are going to refer your work to other people, share it with other people and keep coming back to your blog is again, if, is, is if you've not only really impressed them once and not twice, but multiple times. And that just for anyone, Jason Zweig is, I think, the greatest financial writer of our time. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and he said, I'm paraphrasing this. Um, so, you know, this is, this is not, not exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, you know, he writes 50 articles per year and he's really proud of like four or five of them. Um, <laughs> and he's like, he's like the greatest of our time. And I, I, I feel, I feel similar, you know, a, a kind of a similar hit rate, so, 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 so to speak, of like, if, if I write 50 articles per year, I can use, at the end of the year, I can pick out three of them that I'm like, ah, this was, this was really good. And then, you know, then there's another maybe 20 that I said, oh, that's pretty good. And then another 10 or 20 where I'm like, ah, that, that, that one just didn't really work. So I think that when you view it through that lens, it just takes a lot of time to build up the, the, uh, the catalog of material that's good, that's, that, that is needed to get enough posts um, to do well. And even if you have the good posts, you know, the odds that someone is going to stumble across them are really difficult. Uh, and, 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 and very low that someone's actually going to see them. So that's why it just takes years and years of doing this. So I, I started blogging full time in 2007. And it was not until I would say 2015 that a lot of people, that, that the audience of people outside the Motley Fool we grew to, to any meaningful number. And I would say wow. it wasn't until 2018, in which case by then I had been doing this for 11 years that I felt like the audience had reached some sort of critical mass that, that, that became meaningful. Wow. So it, it was writing full time for more than a decade um, to do this. And, and in many ways, of course, there are so many writers that have a much, a much larger audience than, than I do. So it, it, it's not like I've reached the peak. I've been doing this full time for 11 years and there's still a long ways to go. So if you are through the lens of like a product manager that needs to prove to your boss that this new product, this new blog, you know, paid off and, and you have to prove that to them within 30 days or something, forget about it. It's never going to work. It takes so much more time than that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say the same goes for like podcasting as well? Or would you, and also with that, I guess with the, you know, getting it out there, are there any strategies that you can put in place to help grow? I mean, like you said, like the chance of someone stumbling across your blog, it's quite difficult. 
So are there any kind of like raw organic strategies that you could implement to help facilitate that growth? The one thing I would, I would say um, is just believing that content is a meritocracy. And if you are writing good stuff, you will eventually get noticed. It will take a while, but if you were just writing good stuff and putting it out on Twitter and Facebook, you will get noticed. If it's, if it's really good, it will get noticed over time. And I think you, if you just take that leap of faith that people will notice it, um, then, then you just have to be patient and let it do it. Are, are there ways to speed that up? I don't, I don't think so. And I know what doesn't work, but is what most people try to do is they just try to force it. This is like speeding up the fish's growth. They try to force it and they will email other writers and say, Hey, check out my blog, check out my blog, take this. Hey, we retweet this for me. Hey, can you promote this for me? That, that doesn't work. Josh Brown calls that anti-social media when it's like, you're just like begging people to share your content. That just doesn't work. You have to just write it and put it out there and then take as a leap of faith that people will notice it over time. And I've seen so many writers who have done that, who have, if they're writing great stuff, people just randomly will notice it. And someone with a big profile like Josh Brown or someone will notice it and he'll tweet it out to his million followers. And then from there, like it just takes on a life of its own. That will eventually happen. It just, it just, just like the fish, you can't force it. You just have to let that growth take its time. Absolutely. Um, I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about, um, before we wrap up about uh, the psychology of money. So how long have you been working on this book for? I would say the ideas from this book are things that I've been working on for one decade. I mean, the, the, the book is kind of the, the most important bits about behavioral finance and investing history that I've come across over the last decade. So in that sense, I've been working on this book for my entire career. Um, and a lot of the stories, the, the research, the examples are things that I came across over the last decade. Actually writing it and sitting it down is something that I did in the latter half of 2019. But the, the ideas, I think this is true for a lot of books, the ideas are things that came across years and decades um, rather than you know sitting down with a blank slate and trying to figure this thing out as I went it was just okay what of, of all the of the articles that I've written the thousands of articles that are written what are the the really important points that I've come across and what were some of the best examples and stories that I could use to tie those together in a cohesive way that told a story about um, you know how we think about money not not what we should do with our money but what goes on inside of our heads when we try to do things with money what are like the softer side of finance that I think is so incredibly important when we typically view finance through the lens of like a math-based field where it's numbers and formulas and spreadsheets. But what so matters in money, whether it's personal finances or investing or business decisions, is just how you deal with your own emotions, your own psychology, um, you know, dealing with your own relationships with greed and fear and who you trust, who you seek information from these soft kind of mushy parts of finance that are easy to sweep under the rug if you view finance through the lens of a, an analytical math-based field. Yeah. I guess, do you talk about why people are bad with money? Uh, well, there's, there's lots... I, I guess there's lots of that. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't say there's anything in the book that is that, um, you know, that, is that direct. But I, I think there's a lot of ways that it's not necessarily why we're bad with money. In fact, the, the first chapter in the book is called No One's Crazy, which is that even though people do crazy things with their money, no mm-hmm. one is crazy because everyone is just trying to make decisions with their money that fits some model of the world that they've seen. 
So based on their own personal experiences, their own goals, but what they want in life, they're trying to use their money to fit that model. And everyone has different experiences. So we all come up with a slightly different model in life. So it's not necessarily that people are bad with money. And I, 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 I would shy away from myself of like criticizing people's money decisions because people have had different experiences than I have. So they have different goals than I do. But I think what I want to point out are the things that are universal for people for how we can fool ourselves with money. So it's not necessarily that we're making bad decisions, but what are we missing when we make those decisions? And how can we think about the decisions that we make through a a more productive way? And the reason I made that the first chapter was to point out that Look, these are kind of my observations that I think are the most universal, but everyone is different. Everyone's going to have different goals. Everyone has a different relationship with money. There are very few just universal truths that apply to everyone. And that in itself is like the only universal truth. The only thing that is true for everyone is that everyone views money in a, through a different lens and through a different way. Um, so that's, I mean, that's that, that's kind of the nuance of why people are, are bad at money. It's, I, I think it's it's a combination of our relationship with greed and fear, those two things. But also, it is easy to view other people as being bad with money because they're doing something different than you would or doing something that doesn't make sense to you. But it makes a lot of sense to them. And what you are doing with your money doesn't make any sense to them either. So if we just view... I love this quote um, from a financial advisor named Tim Maurer who says, personal finance is more personal than it is finance. I think that's really the thrust of like... Look, there's no, this is not arithmetic where two plus two equals four for everyone. The decisions that we make with our money are so personal and we're not making them in a spreadsheet. We're making them at the dinner table, talking with our spouse and our family about all the crazy different nuance that's hard to summarize with numbers uh, and doesn't make a lot of sense to one person, but is right for someone else to do. Yeah, no, that's... That's spot on. I, I like that quite a lot. Um, and, and I guess finally, like, like who is this... Who is this book for? Like, is this for a sophisticated investor, a not unsophisticated investor? Is it for investors at all? Is it for, you know, just general, like, who is it for? So years ago, I was a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and my job there was to write a column every Saturday that would be relevant to a hedge fund manager, but understandable and digestible to a, a soccer mom who had no, who was educated and smart and curious, but had no financial interest or background whatsoever. It was to like kind of find the balance between those two. So, how do you write something that is accessible to a general person without removing the important nuance that's going to be relevant to a, a professional? So, that's always what I've tried to do with with the the writing that I do, and same with this book. So, the principles and the, the stories that I tell, I, I think, are relevant to a financial professional to a hedge fund manager, to an investment banker. But I hope every chapter is digestible and the thrust of it is understandable to anyone, who, have, who people who don't have interest in finance. So I think it's, it's, it's made for people who are interested in learning about how the world works and learning about how money affects people's lives and how they can think about money in a way that is more productive for their individual goals. And that is a big and encompassing uh, topic. I think there are two fields in life that are relevant to you, whether you like them or not. And one is health and the other is money. It doesn't matter whether you are interested in those fields or whether you want to learn about those fields. If It doesn't matter if you're not interested in those fields. Those fields are interested in you and they're yeah. going to impact your life whether you want it or not. So I, I, that's why I think, you know, it's look, it'd be cliche for an author to say, my book is relevant to everyone, but money is relevant to everyone. Mm-hmm. So I think there are going to be people who read this book and say, maybe... 
it was it was too basic for them. It was too confusing for them. There's always going to be those sides. But I really want to try to make this as broad as possible for how everyone thinks about money and what are the universal things that trip people up over time, uh, whether you are a financial professional or you're just a young person starting out in life. No, that's that's good. And when is the when is the book going to be available? It's available September eighth. It's available for pre order now. It comes out and ships on September eighth. Awesome. So I want to work towards wrapping up now. I ask all my guests these rapid fire questions. Um, so try and do your best to answer them as rapid firely as possible. <laughs> as rapid. Um, who has or what has been your biggest inspiration? I would say my kids who are young. I have a four-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter. But even in that very short period of time, there's there's no other greater inspiration in life to get your butt in gear and become a better person. Not just a better parent, but just a better person than having kids. That's great. I haven't had kids before. That's good. Uh, favorite podcast? Uh, Hardcore History, which is done by a guy named Dan Carlin, who does these ridiculously deep dives into historical periods. So he'll do like a 10-hour podcast on World War One, Very detailed, very intricate, but he's such a good storyteller that they're captivating. Yeah, that comes up a lot on this podcast, actually. Um, favorite blog? Probably Josh Brown's The Reform Broker, just because he's been an inspiration as a writer to me, because he has really met the uh, halfway point between being smart and having good insight, but also just being an incredible writer. There are a lot of smart people and there are a lot of great writers, but to meet those two in the same person is is rare. So, I, and, and he's probably done that better than anyone. Nice. Favorite book? Uh, probably a book called The Big Change by a historian named Frederick Lewis Allen, who wrote... Uh, he wrote it in the 1950s and it was how American culture changed from 1900 to 1950, which there was so much change during that period. Um, you know, that was, you know, from 1900 to 1950, we went from horse and buggy to rockets. It was just like everything changed during that period between the great world war one, great depression, world war two. And she's just such a fascinating writer that the book is, is, has always captivated me. That's good. Uh, favorite Twitter account. Probably Ramp Capital, just because he's so entertaining and brings so much light to a community that usually takes itself too seriously. Yeah. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Well, right now in 2020, I have a burning desire to like go to a bar and hang out with a bunch of strangers and high five and hug people, which is normally would be my nightmare. But I just yearn for that just random social contact that has all been robbed to us from us over the last four months. Oh man, yeah, tell me about it. Um, advice you would give to your 21-year-old self? Don't worry. You'll be fine. It's all going to work out. That, 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 that doesn't mean everything's going to be great. There's going to be so many downs and so many problems, but it's, it's going to work out. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Yeah. What would you do with $100 in your favorite city? Uh, great question. Because normally what I do in cities, when I, I, I speak all around the world and whenever I go to a new city, I just walk. I just put on my headphones and I just walk in random directions for hours. So what would I do for $100? I don't know because that's what I love doing in those cities. But maybe I'd use that $100 to stop at some random cafes along the way. Hmm. What's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? Uh, 
naysayers because there's always there's always going to even if you are the most successful startup in the world there's always going to be people who make rational who make rational coherent arguments for why it's not going to work that's always the case there's been no exceptions to that so it's not that you should necessarily ignore them you should take them seriously but you shouldn't think that rational arguments for why it's not going to work preclude you eventually figuring it out yeah that's good and finally what's your i guess what's your vision for I guess your role at the Collaborative Fund and you know, I guess what's your vision as a writer? Like, what do you, where do you see yourself going? I want to write for as long as I feel like I can keep finding new ideas that try to help explain how the world works. And as soon as I realize I reached a point where I can't do that anymore, I want to bow out and never be heard from again. I never want to force the writing or keep going just because it's my job even when I have nothing to say. Whenever I reach the point where I say, okay, this isn't working anymore or other people are doing this so much better than I, I hope that I can just say, okay, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Goodbye now. That's my goal. Like quitting gracefully and quitting on your own terms uh, that's really what it is, is quitting on your own terms rather than being forced out is something that is, I, I think is, is really underappreciated in almost every, in almost any career. That's good. Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, if people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Mostly on Twitter. My, my handle is Morgan Housel, my first, first and last name. That's where most of what my thoughts live, everything that I write uh, lives. It's, it's pretty much all on Twitter. And just again, for those um, that didn't catch that, when is the book coming out? September this year, right? September 8th, that's right. And they can pre-order it on your website? On Amazon. You'll, you'll be able to find it under the psychology of money. Awesome. Well then, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Just want to say another huge thank you to Morgan for coming on today's show. And for those of you who have thought about writing in the finance world or would be interested, um, you should definitely consider a career or a route into content marketing or content writing for a VC fund. It's definitely a role that I haven't seen enough of, especially here in the UK. So if you're a writer, why not hit up one of these funds? As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.